This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. An early line in the book written by our next guest really hits home as to part of the state of the country right now. He says, quote, America's machine is broken, end quote. And he's not just referring to the strained discourse we have in our political parties. No, he's talking about everything we have, Internet, greater health care, more data, understand what we like and what we don't like. And the fact that maybe we don't know how to maximize these tools sitting in our laps or we assume that these tools will just take care of themselves. But what that is doing is allowing some of the most powerful people in the country to gain a further level of control. These are people who say that they want to change the world for the better, but in many cases, it doesn't end up being the result. Anand Giridharas is the author of the new book, Winners Take All, the Elite Charade of Changing the World. He's also a visiting scholar at the Carter Journalism Institute at New York University and a former columnist at the New York Times. And it's a pleasure to have him joining us here in the studio. Thank you for having me. Nice to have you here. So, so this idea, where did it first kind of pop into your head, crystallize in your head of this control that seemingly a lot of wealthy, well-to-do people are trying to gain right now? I mean, I think I observed a paradox all around me that I found very difficult to explain. And the paradox was this. We live in, by any measure, an incredibly generous time when it comes to rich people and their view in, in of their obligation to society. You have more money being given away. $410 billion last year or the year before was given away philanthropically. You have people falling over themselves to sign the giving pledge to give you know a majority of their very high net worths away. You, you have every young person on campuses like this one wanting to change the world and wanting to go to an internship in Africa or start a social enterprise or raise money for some cause. Um, and yet at the same time, in addition to being a highly generous age, um, it is also one of the most unequal times in American history, as unequal as it's been in about 100 years. It's a period in which elites have managed to corner most of the benefits from progress, as you were indicating. Um, and I became interested in how uh, we could have an elite that was at one level so incredibly generous and at another level so predatory. Right. And I want to know the relationship between the helpfulness and the predation. And there's a lot of different theories out there. I think, you know, the dominant theory is, well, you know, yeah, it's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, they can't solve everything. Yeah, they're trying. Um, and for the last few years to investigate this topic, I spent time in their world trying to understand what they're doing. And my big conclusion was that the winners of the age are determined to help in any way they can, mm -hmm. except in ways that would threaten their own privileges and the system that allows them to stay on top. And what that has resulted in is the winners not just dabbling in social change, but increasingly taking over social change, mm -hmm. privatizing the pursuit of social change, and pursuing change in ways that kind of neuters and defangs change, mm -hmm. so that change becomes kind of winner-friendly, inexpensive for elites, um, and actually, in fact, not really very changey at all. So then when you think about philanthropy in general, how do you think this mindset and this shift is actually changing philanthropy as a whole? 
You know, philanthropy's had a long evolution. We, you know, there used to be um, these kind of benevolent associations a couple hundred years ago yeah. where, where the many would kind of take care of the many. Um, you had about a hundred years ago the rise of what we would now call philanthropy, which is these big foundations um, solving, you know, not not just kind of palliating, but attempting to solve big public problems, right. the, kind of, the kind of problems governments also you know, are supposed to solve, and with the Rockefellers and Carnegies and others, and really taking on the public good, but in a private capacity. Um, and that arose in a period very much like this one, where you had a lot of private fortunes, a lot of private dynamism, a lot of great things happening in terms of innovation and, and change, but then as now, you weren't seeing innovation translate into progress if progress is defined as most people's lives improving. Right. And so you have these foundations emerging as an expression of that kind of private uh, power that was kind of, frankly, lagged by public capacity. And then that period gave way to what we now look at as the age of reform or the progressive era and then the New Deal, where we actually built an infrastructure of society that was just far more ambitious than what right. private people could do alone. Right? The Rural Electrification Act, I mean, that would have never happened just leaving it to rich people sure. to, to, to spread power to places. Um, the interstate highway system, I mean, giving women the vote, doing civil rights for African Americans and others, I mean, like those yeah. are the kinds of things that were really a deeper and truer and more meaningful and real kind of change um, that really built the America we now know and live in. And part of what I'm arguing in the book is I think we're repeating this cycle again, that we're basically now in another era that much like the industrial era has created all kinds of possibility, all kinds of change, disrupted various patterns of living, um, created extraordinary promise for people who, with the wherewithal to capitalize on it, um, but has left a lot of people displaced and has frankly outstripped the government's current capacity to understand and make sense of and govern and control and regulate it. Um, and so, and, and by the way, that's partly because the people who've prospered over the last generation have denigrated government at every turn, right. maligned right. it, <clears throat> and then turn around and say, ah, oh, what a shame, government is so, so ineffective. Um, and so they step in once again, as the Rockefellers and Carnegies did privately to solve, Facebook's going to change the world, Elon Musk's going to do space, yeah. someone else is going to do the education system. And it seems benevolent, but part of what I want to have people see through this book is that what happens when the rich take over change is that we slowly lose our capacity as a people, as a public, to make the kind of changes we made when we brought women into this society, when we built the interstate highway system, when yeah. we went to space. Though we, We've lost the capacity to actually do ambitious things together because we've kind of allowed change to be defined down to you know whatever Mark Zuckerberg wants to do on a Monday morning. But and I guess when you factor in government, as part of this equation, uh, it's probably been seen in other countries over the course of time more so than here in the United States. But you mentioned in the book that maybe now here in the U.S. right at this moment, we may be seeing that because of having somebody like Donald Trump as the president of the United States. I think Donald Trump has done America one big favor, which is he has shown there was a view that I think you could have until Donald Trump became president that the government doesn't really matter. 
the act the actions really in the private sector what matters is you know is business and 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 the dynamism of our entrepreneurs and yeah you can have a good government bad good but who really cares right well donald trump has ended the who really cares fantasy because we now it is it is clear i think to everybody that if you have someone who is basically unca- incapable of doing the job if you have if you have um democratic institutions that are in decay not functioning properly it starts to gum up the whole society and it starts to um, create uh, not only the kind of uncertainty that companies right. don't like, um, but just fear and anxiety and just all kinds of toxicity in the society that's like not good for anybody. And so I think, I actually think there's a good shot just as the, as the, as the period of this kind of private robber barons and the, the past Gilded Age and big philanthropy led to an age of reform. I think we are overdue for a new age of reform now. And right. I think there's a shot that what will follow Trump is not just the end of of a kind of con man president, in my view, but the end of this long era of fake change that that he, in some ways, was the culmination of. So then, where are you on the on the issue uh, and something we've talked about on the show, Goodbed, uh, of the public private partnership? Because that's something that is talked more and more these days, uh, especially considering some of the infrastructure issues that we have in this country. And there is a thought process by some people of, you know what, if if the government can't get it done, then maybe the private sector should be able to get it done. Is there a concern even on that level that you have? Yes, but it, it depends on what the nature of the partnership is and right. how it's structured, right? Right, right. Um, so... One of the problems I talk about in the book is what I would call the winner's veto. More and more stuff, first of all, is being pushed into public-private partnerships. And they sound great, and it sounds like everyone's working together. But part of what happens in a public-private partnership, depending on how it's structured, is often it's the kind of government that does the implementation work or sets the priority, but it's it's business that'll fund fund a thing, or rich people or philanthropists or whatever. Now, what that does is... Rich people have a choice about which thing they want to fund or not. Yeah. If it's set up to, to give them that kind of choice, then their own the only projects that are going to get funded are ones that don't hurt rich people, right? Right. Uh, and 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 things that do are not going to get funded. So over time, those partnerships are going to have a particular bias, right? Yeah. Um, so you know, building infrastructure, sure. Um, cracking down on tax havens. You're not going to find a lot of like <laughs> private partners for let's crack down on tax havens, even though that's actually something that a lot of Republicans and Democrats think we should do. Um, now, on something like infrastructure, I, mean, I don't know the details of of the most recent plan, but that I think is often structured differently. Yeah, where it's really a government program, the government setting the rules, the government setting the priority, the government deciding what it wants to build for the country. And then there are these clever financing mechanisms that draw in private sector capital and provide some return. I mean, I'm less troubled by that. I'm, I'm interested in who is governing, right? And when, when it's the private sector governing a project, I'm concerned about this kind of private takeover of fundamentally public questions. But if it's using private capital but the government has the driver's seat, I think that's, that's different. That's different to me than Mark Zuckerberg coming into the you know, public schools in Newark with big ideas of how they should be different, even sure. though he'd never been to Newark before. 
Anand Giridardis is the author of the book Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. You mentioned Mark Zuckerberg uh, and obviously what he wanted to try and bring or what he believes he is bringing with Facebook. Yet we see, obviously, some of the issues going on surrounding the data that is being shared, the information that's being changed, and his appearance on Capitol Hill didn't exactly give people a great feeling that he is going to be able to to take care of a lot of these issues, that some of them may even continue to occur. Where he is concerned, when you have that kind of mindset of wanting to affect so many people— and then you have something like this happen, you would think it really tears away at what Facebook could be. We haven't seen that a lot yet, but we may still, I guess. I, mean, I think what what's troubling about a lot of those guys in Silicon Valley, um, I, I have a chapter in the book that I call, you know, Rebel Kings in Worrisome Berets. And the reason is, I think a lot of those guys in Silicon Valley think of themselves as rebels. Yeah, They think of themselves as little guys up against the man. And that's because of their heritage in tech where they really were tinkerers and, you know, and and had this feeling of being outsiders to like the IBMs and GEs and Walmarts of of the economy. But that was a long time ago. Yeah. They are now arguably some of the most powerful people in human history. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you think about a Rockefeller or Carnegie, they they made things. Like these new people they control your children's minds. I mean, they, they they have a billion plus of us addicted on each of their platforms. They control what we think is true. They have the ability to tip our elections. Like, which robber baron 100 years ago had anything comparable to that level of power, psychological power over all of the world in real time? I mean, it's astonishing. And many of the companies they have built are monopolies. The only reason... There haven't been antitrust issues is because we they raised new legal questions that we frankly haven't passed adequate laws around or sure. haven't had enough uh, findings on. And because these guys tend to think of themselves, I, I kind of explore their self-image through talking to people um, as these rebels, you know, like the rebels in the in a rebel army in a in a pickup truck, like feeling like they're going up against the palace. And p- what I describe in the book is it's like. You know, we see this in, in certain developing countries where you have like a civil war and you and you have you do have this rebel army in the pickup truck and then the rebel army wins yeah. and they conquer the palace. Yeah. And I always say, you know, it's a bad sign whenever the leader leader keeps on his beret from the rebel days. <laughs> like that's when you know as a public you're screwed, right? Because he still thinks he's a rebel. That's right. He doesn't accept. Yeah. There's the Mugabe effect. Like he doesn't accept. <laughs> yeah. The grace and the dignity and right. the, the, the... To move know, on and take that next step. I, I now have power. Yeah. I'm now powerful. It's yeah. now me who needs to be watched over. Yeah. It's, it's actually me who we need to be vigilant about, right? Instead, when you have that rebel psychology, yeah. you always think it's someone else that actually is, is, is the man. And all these guys... I mean, that's the craziness about these guys. I mean, if you meet someone from Goldman Sachs or GE, yeah, they're powerful and they evade, they're evasive on certain issues and they don't like regulation. But like... None of them pretends they're not powerful. Yeah. They all know exactly who they are. Mm-hmm. They know that you know that they own hundred thousand trucks and the, you know, like they 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 accept who they are in the world. 
And these Silicon Valley people are in total denial. They think they're running these like communities. They think they're these movement builders. They think they're kind of liberators of man. The cult. It's a a total cult. Yeah. And when the most powerful people in your society think they're rebels, you got a real problem because they're just going to abdicate all of their moral responsibility to participate in actually fixing some of the problems we have. So then when you look at the United States and obviously our structure of government, president, but but Congress as well, how do those mindsets and how do those availabilities, especially with tech, because of the fact that there aren't as many regulations kind of keeping business in line at times, how does that impact the government, our Congress specifically? Because as we've talked about, it feels like our Congress is about five steps behind and never is able to get closer than maybe two or three steps behind. And that feels like that's going to continue on for decade upon decade. I mean, I think one thing that I've become very interested in um, is I think we need way more transparency around what some of these tech companies are lobbying for in Washington. Yeah. Because one of the reasons we can't regulate them properly is because they have the best lobbying operations in Washington right now. Um, And one of the things I've found through having this book out there and talking to people privately who work in some of these spaces is a lot of the young people who work at these companies actually have no idea what is lobbied for in their name. Sure. Right? They yeah. may work at yeah. Facebook or Google or Twitter or Apple, whatever, but they don't know what it's actually fighting for. Yeah. And I think if they did, a lot of them would have a problem with it and would, in some cases, make hell for their company. So, you know, one of the ideas I've been batting around is, like, why not require companies to do an annual report, either to the public or internally, you know, the way they do with their financials, on their lobbying? Who did you lobby? On what issues did you lobby? When were the meetings? How, yeah. how did you align campaign contributions to go with that lobbying? Um, I think employees of companies should have the right to know what is being done with their work and in their name. You talk in the book about also uh, different types of events that we see go on around the world, things like Davos, things like the Clinton Global Initiative. How do those elements play into this this narrative of power that is that has been brought forward here in the last few decades? I think if you look at some of the developments of the last few decades and what makes this period unique, because not everything is unique about this period, but but the unique features are um, this kind of intense period of globalization combined with um, very rapid spread of technologies and new technologies that really change things very drastically, um, that allow things to happen remotely across borders, cryptocurrencies, obviously the internet. I mean, it's just so many... So many things. The ability to, you know, have a small company to have a Chinese production because of all the tech that allows them to manage that, which would have been way too complicated 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, What has happened as a result is you end up having this kind of transnational elite that are in some ways more connected to each other than to the places they live. Right. Yeah. Um, so you 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 know you get a, an investor in California who flies to China twice a month because he invests the money of some Chinese insurance company and in startups in the Bay Area, right? Um, and you have you know people in China who are you know very connected to parts of Africa where they're doing work or or you know uh, seeding seeding investments or whatever. Um, and so we've ended up with this kind of Davos class of people who um, work across borders, 
who have been able to really seize a lot of the benefits of of innovation in our time, yeah. um, and in some ways hoard them, and who have these deep connections to each other and these deep networks with each other, and and in some ways use those networks to hoard opportunity. Um, but who have not necessarily been very good citizens of the soil below them. And so you have, you know, a rich guy in Youngstown, Ohio, who's done great because he's figured out how to shift production to China. But unfortunately, everybody he went to high school with doesn't have a job anymore. Yeah. And that pattern of like the one rich guy who figured it out in Youngstown, but everybody else who kind of got screwed, I think is a story you could tell about a lot of places in the world right now. Yeah, there's there's and a variety of places here in the United States that have been impacted by that over Correct. the last twenty or thirty years. I'm thinking of, of one place that I've visited in the past, Binghamton, New York, which had great manufacturing for a long time, and then it's it's lost most of it over the last fifteen to twenty years. And those are towns that you know were staples of the United States, you know, thirty, forty, fifty years ago, and it's just not the case anymore. And I think it's, I mean, I felt this for a long time. You, you know, you were asking where the book come from. I mean, one of my you know, I, I, as a reporter and a writer, I have lots of different types of evidence that kind of enter, that, that motivate me to pursue a story. And some are like formal admissible evidence, like when you're interviewing someone or you sure. have, you know, data and reports. But there's also a lot of evidence that comes more passively. It's kind of inadmissible. Like you never put it in a book explicitly, but just kind of gives you a sense of what's going on in a place. And before this book really began, I would just notice when I was driving around this country that if you kind of left, and this is all like post-crisis, you know, the, the decade after the crisis, if you were kind of anywhere an hour or more beyond a major American city, yeah, there was just something off, you know? And it, it was sometimes just boarded up, the, the density of like boarded up places or or broken windows and you know just abandoned places but like I mean even driving like these towns around upstate New York on a Saturday in July and it wasn't too hot and you think and there was just like no one there yeah and you think it's a Saturday like there's these porches like no there's no community here like no one's no one's grilling like there was just something <laughs> a lot of these places have been hollowed out all the young people are gone yeah we have meth problems that have literally eaten entire parts of this country essentially off the map. Yeah. And I think a lot of us, you know, uh, to go back to where you started, because we f could be tempted to feel that there's a lot of innovation. We got these, uh, you know, we got these 4K, whatever, HK, whatever kind of fancy TVs there are now. Yeah. Curved. Yeah. You got the curved TVs now. <laughs> That's right. Right. You got the iPhone. You got the, with the S, the no S, the big camera, the sideways camera. <laughs> um, you got Tesla. You just plug that in. You got to just ready to roll. You know, like you can feel like things are happening. Yeah. Like it's fine. Even, you know, Trump, whatever. Like things are fine. And I think what I have, one of the things that I've tried to remind people in this book is there's a difference between innovation and progress. Right. Yeah. Innovation is about the rain falling down. Progress is about who harvests the rain. Right, exactly, yeah. And that is where the disjuncture is in American life today. Too few people are harvesting the rain. So then what has to, what has to be changed? What, what, what either mentally or actually physically needs to be changed in order to start down a different path at this point? I think we need to change our story about how we seek change. And that may sound abstract, but I actually don't think it is. I think at the end of the day, people's mental models about how to solve problems are incredibly important in shaping 
how we go to solve problems. And right now, the dominant mental model, if we were to walk around this campus and ask students questions about, you know, how do you make change? I think a lot of what we'd hear is this like secondhand smoke kind of absorbed ideas about you start a social enterprise, you start a business, you do, right? And I think there's been a brainwashing that's going on, that's gone on, that's tried to tell people that you, the way you make change is kind of privately in ways that don't disturb the powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to go back to telling the story of how we really made change in this country, um, which is through movements and law and policy and systems and solving problems Number one, at the root, and number two, through the deep systems that we all share in common, and not because some rich guy in some town wanted to save one school. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a tough cultural shift. But I think if we don't make that shift, we're actually headed down a road where we're going to actually become a lot like many of the developing countries that I have spent time in as a reporter, yeah. where you have a lot of smart people. You have some great companies. You have some really nice neighborhoods. But most of the country is basically poor and suffering and needs to be kind of bribed to stay out of the nice neighborhoods. And I don't think we want to become that kind of society. I actually don't think Americans of any stripe actually want that outcome. Right. But I think if we keep going down the road we are now, um, we are closer to that kind of scenario than we, than we think. Great having you here today. Thank good you luck, for having luck, me. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Anand Giridardis, who is uh, the author of the book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.